Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic adult and child psychiatrist. In this and the next two podcast episodes, I will be discussing mold toxicity. This is a very common root cause to brain-related symptoms and can contribute to anything from depression, anxiety, panic, obsessions, compulsions, inattention, mood swings, and even psychosis, so hallucinations and delusions. It is also a common culprit in autism and in dementia. In addition, mold toxicity is a deeper root cause to many of the other root causes of brain-related symptoms. I often think of it as the root of the roots. It can contribute to mast cell activation, which relates to inflammation, elevated pyrroles, copper-zinc imbalances, and endermethylation, all of which relate to nutrient imbalances, oxidative stress, which relates to toxicity, food sensitivities, autonomic dysfunction, which relates to the vagus nerve, and susceptibility to things like candida overgrowth, Lyme, and its co-infections, as well as viruses. It can also contribute to uh, sensitivity to electromagnetic fields, or what we call electromagnetic hypersensitivity. As you can see, one of the challenges of discussing the emerging research into root causes is that everything is interconnected. The best I can do is to discuss these topics separately and try to point out where these dots connect. I have previous podcasts on each of these topics. In this episode, after giving some general historical context and discussing where things are generally in both conventional and functional medicine, I'll address the following questions. What are three types of mold-related illness? How do we become mold toxic? What is mold colonization? Is everyone susceptible? Do mold toxins stay with us even when we are out of water-damaged environments? What are the brain and body symptoms? And diagnoses can be due to mold toxicity. So first I should say that mold toxicity is not something that's generally taught in medical school, and it's not considered a big player when it comes to conventional medicine and psychiatry. The original pioneer in this area is Dr. Richie Shoemaker, And he wrote the book called Mold Warriors and has had um, subsequent books as well. And he found that biotoxin illness was creating a lot of symptoms for people. Now, at the time, he was looking at a biotoxin that was not a mold toxin, but nonetheless, his work translated and moved on to mycotoxin is the name of mold toxins. And the medication that he was finding to be extremely impactful was cholestyramine, an older cholesterol medication. But his discoveries were built upon by the work of Dr. Neil Nathan and Dr. Joseph Brewer. And my own approach to mold toxicity is very much influenced by the work of Dr. Neil Nathan, as he has been my mentor and This is since I discovered that I had mold toxicity myself as a primary driver to many of my own symptoms. Their approach differs from Dr. Shoemaker in that they test for mycotoxins 
directly in the urine, whereas Dr. Shoemaker's approach was to look for and is to look for biomarkers. So these would be um, blood tests that would look for inflammatory markers that aren't generally tested for that could point to mold toxicity. However, there are other biotoxins that could also be causing those markers to be elevated. But our approach, and when I say our, I mean, again, Neil Nathan and how I do things, is to check for urine mycotoxins. Another difference is that Dr. Shoemaker's approach relies more heavily on the use of cholestyramine, whereas the work of Dr. Nathan and Dr. Brewer is to use binders that are more targeted to the specific mold toxins that are showing on the urine mycotoxin test. And though Dr. Shoemaker wrote Mold Warriors in 2005, and then he and, again, Drs. Nathan and Dr. Brewer uh, have been treating mold toxicity for many years, it didn't really start to come onto the scene in terms of functional medicine understanding until the last uh, three to five years. And when I started to learn about it, it wasn't even offered as a topic in most functional medicine conferences. And now you will see conferences dedicated to mold toxicity, multiple conferences. So the number of doctors that are gaining awareness in the functional medicine community has certainly grown substantially. That doesn't mean, however, if someone goes to their conventionally trained doctor that they are going to have any sense or appreciation of how this could be contributing to their symptoms. Unless, of course, that's a physician who's particularly open and humble and willing to always learn new information. So I'd like to comment on what three types of mold-related illness there are because they often get confused. First, there's mold allergy, and that's what most people have a general sense of. Just like any other allergy, immune symptoms can be triggered, usually in the form of upper respiratory symptoms, so runny nose, sneezing. That, however, is not necessarily due to mold toxicity. Mold toxicity relates to the acquisition of mold toxins, typically from water-damaged spaces. So the molds that we're allergic to out in the environment, if we are allergic, those molds outside have checks and balances. It's the molds that grow in contained spaces within buildings that are spewing off particular toxins. And they are often different families, although there is some overlap. We could be acquiring mold toxins in an environment, and there's not necessarily going to be a smell. There can be, and that can certainly be a red flag, but there's not always a smell. So mold toxins are on the spores that are in the air and can then be inhaled. And the toxins within the body, because these particular toxins are ionophores, meaning they have a positive charge at one end and a negative charge at another end, they can easily cross tissue barriers. With that, they can impact various parts of the body. And they 
go from the body into the liver, into the gallbladder. And in the gallbladder, they're attached to bile salts. On the bile salts, they're put into the gastrointestinal tract from the gallbladder. And from there are reabsorbed with the bile salts. So, but for interrupting that process, which I'll be talking about when I discuss treatment, those mold toxins don't necessarily go anywhere. So this is part of why recognizing when someone has mold toxicity and using appropriate treatment interventions is so important because simply getting out of a mold toxic environment doesn't necessarily mean the toxins are going to be going out of the person. The third type of mold-related illness is what is called mold colonization. And this is where the mold spores, again, which have the toxins on them, can be inhaled and can colonize the sinuses. And from there, just if you think about drainage from the sinuses, they can also go into the gastrointestinal tract and cause colonization there. So how does one become mold toxic? There's two primary variables. One is a seeming genetic vulnerability. And it's thought that 25% of people are genetically vulnerable. And while there is specific testing called HLA testing, that is testing that comes out of the work of Dr. Shoemaker, We haven't all found that testing to be particularly useful. I have certainly seen many individuals who had mold toxicity that did not have the genes that have been suggested to be related. And I've seen people who have had those genes and have not developed mold toxicity. It's an important point here because many people will contact me and be certain that they have what they would call the dreaded gene. And from my standpoint, again, this particular testing is not clinically useful. However, I do find it to be scary for people and give them a sense of hopelessness about their medical condition. With or without this gene, we see people benefiting significantly from treatment for mold toxicity. And I don't do this type of testing, though I did early on before I, again, found that it wasn't clinically useful in my practice. So if not everyone is vulnerable, and I should say there is a belief that if anyone gets enough exposure that they will become toxic. However, 25% appear to not mount an immune response and become much more easily toxic. So within a household... You could have a couple of family members who are becoming sick and then other family members who are not. So I always hear people say, well, no one else was sick in the family, suggesting that then it couldn't be mold, but that's not actually the case. We used to say that it was estimated that 50% of buildings had water damage, and now I would agree with many mold and environmental inspectors who say it's closer to 75 to even 100%, some would argue. And again, where there is water damage and retains moisture, there is an ideal medium for toxic mold to grow rapidly and produce spores, which carry toxins. 
It isn't just the infamous black mold or stachybotrys that is the problem. Aspergillus, penicillium, fusarium, chitonium. These molds also make toxins that can be inhaled. Mold in buildings is often not visible. It can be in a crawl space, an attic, behind a wall, under a sink. It can be within a component of the air conditioning system or even the ductwork. The spores disseminate easily. They don't necessarily, for example, stay in a damp basement. So if you consider approximately 25% of people being especially vulnerable and at least, but likely more, 50% of buildings having water damage, then there are a lot of people who are unknowingly becoming toxic while spending time in affected homes, but also schools, workplaces, cars, dorms, nurseries. And when you consider the masses of people returning to water-damaged homes after floods, the implications of this evolving understanding is quite staggering. I see people with symptoms related to mold toxicity who have high levels of toxins in their urine and who, when we start to remove those toxins and they're coming down in the urine, we see their symptoms improve. You might be asking why now would so many people be developing mold toxicity? Wouldn't there have always been water damage in buildings? And I think there are multiple variables here. First, generally, we are all more toxic than we've ever been. So our ability to detoxify is already challenged and somewhat overwhelmed. So this can create a tipping point. But also building practices are different. Buildings don't breathe the way they used to. They're much more sealed up, which actually can create more problems when it comes to things like retained moisture or lack of ventilation or air circulation. The other factor to consider is that the drywall even that is used now has mold in it. I believe it's aspergillus and stachybotrys. So this is not necessarily a problem except when that drywall gets wet or when there's very high humidity, then there can be mold growth. Lastly, back to our physiology, another consideration would be our nutritional and immune status is not what it would have been a hundred years ago. The food that we eat is less nutrient-dense. Our microbiome, which helps protect us and helps support our immune system, is being damaged by toxins as well as these nutrient deficiencies. Addressing this can have significant implications, not only for brain health, but for physical health. And this even impacts how rapidly we age. Often there are many symptoms of mold toxicity that seem unrelated, which is why many who are unknowingly dealing with this end up seeing multiple specialists and are left feeling their doctors think it's all in their head. The diagnosis of anxiety or panic, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, ADHD, pseudo-seizures, and conversion disorder are fairly common diagnoses. 
I do empathize with doctors who've been trained to relieve symptoms as opposed to seeking the deeper root cause. Still, I do think all physicians, myself included, can benefit from realizing and saying repeatedly, there is so much we still don't know. Or even, I don't know why you're having your symptoms. The lack of humility or inability to admit one doesn't have the answer sadly can lead some doctors to discount symptoms as psychiatric or to blame their patients for feigning their symptoms. Many of these individuals have mast cell activation and autonomic dysfunction, which I've talked about in previous podcasts, but mast cell activation relates to an exaggerated inflammatory response and can cause a lot of symptoms in the body that seem unrelated and random and triggered by many different things. And autonomic dysfunction relates to what we call the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. The vagus nerve, if you've heard of that, relates to the parasympathetic, whereas the sympathetic is our fight or flight. If we have mold toxicity on board, it can put our body in a chronic state of fight or flight. So it's as if our body knows that something's wrong, but it's not considering mold toxicity because that's not what people think about. So if you're familiar with either of these topics, you'll recognize that some of the symptoms of mold toxicity will overlap with those of mast cell activation and those with autonomic dysfunction. So some of the psychiatric symptoms can include fatigue, brain fog, or inattention, depression, anxiety, which can be in the form of panic, obsessive-compulsive symptoms, generalized anxiety. And I should point out here, too, not unlike being in that fight-or-flight mode, which can be like having a panic attack, so can one have obsessive-compulsive symptoms, and often those will be contamination fears. And again, their limbic system is recognizing that something's not right and the brain is looking for a place to alleviate that worry or that tension in the body. And so this can look like OCD. And again, there is a sense of threat in the body and the person's mind is looking for a place to put that feeling. And that can be obsessive compulsive tendencies to something very unrelated or something that has meaning for them because of some experience they've had. Other symptoms can be mood swings, headaches, mania, psychosis, so hallucinations or delusions. There can be cognitive decline. There can be social withdrawal or social anxiety. It can be very difficult when people have significant mold toxicity to feel comfortable being around people. So this could even be with someone who normally is pretty social, and then they just gradually start to become more withdrawn and then find that it's fatiguing or anxiety-provoking to be around others. This can relate to that physiologic threat sense in the body. There are some symptoms that are very specific to mold toxicity, though they don't have to be present, and I don't tend to see these symptoms in children as much, and I don't actually see them in most of the adults I see that have mold toxicity. But if someone has these symptoms, um, that could certainly be a red flag. 
electric shock sensations, ice pick-like pains, vibrating or pulling sensation running up and down the spine, numbness and tingling, balance or dizziness without other identifiable neurologic conditions. We might also see atypical Parkinson's disease, atypical ALS, a psychogenic seizures or pseudo-seizures, and this is where someone appears to be having seizures. However, there's no evidence of seizure activity on EEGs. There can also be tics or other involuntary movements. Physical symptoms can include sensitivity to bright light, sensitivity to light touch, increased sensitivity to scents, medications, supplements, emotional triggers, even weather changes. And this increased and heightened sensitivity is where there is a lot of overlap with mast cell activation. And when someone contacts me, either for a consultation or for a treatment evaluation, and they have had many medication trials that they their symptoms got worse, that makes me wonder if they have mast cell activation due to more often mold toxicity. Other physical symptoms could be gastrointestinal symptoms, chronic nasal congestion, cough, chest pain, shortness of breath, muscle weakness or muscle pain, joint pain, morning stiffness, excessive thirst, frequent urination, appetite swings, um, rapid weight gain, night sweats, and body temperature dysregulation. So maybe feeling cold when it's hot or hot when it's cold relative to those around them. In children, we'll more often see ADD or ADHD-type symptoms, and they can have any of the symptoms above that I mentioned, but more specific to children could be a growth delay. Associated diagnoses could be, again, mast cell activation, Lyme disease, PANS or PANDAS, which is an autoimmune condition that we see in children that have an acute onset of obsessive-compulsive symptoms, usually in the setting of some type of underlying microbial colonization. So this could be something like a virus. It could be strep in the case of pandas. It could be even candida. But underlying these, again, can be mold toxicity dysregulating the immune system. Other psychiatric diagnoses could be major depression, panic disorder, OCD, bipolar disorder, and even diagnoses that relate to psychosis. Autism, mold toxicity is found to be very common in children and adults who are on the autism spectrum and in adults who have dementia. And if you consider the role mold toxicity plays in what is called oxidative stress, meaning we have more toxicity than our inherent antioxidant protection can manage, then those antioxidants in our body become overwhelmed and can no longer protect us. So most brain-related conditions, there is high oxidative stress. 
However, in autism and in dementia, it's especially severe. And again, we would consider that the toxicity has overwhelmed antioxidant protection, leading to cellular damage and inflammation, causing further cellular damage. And chronic damage and death of cells is what leads to dementia. The diagnoses of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue are both common. In 2013, Dr. Joseph Brewer, who I'd mentioned previously, found that 93% of 112 people with chronic fatigue had elevated levels of mold toxins. So when you hear the term chronic complex illness, this is often people that are struggling with either chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, autoimmune conditions. They have a lot of mysterious symptoms that aren't making sense, and again, often seeing many specialists. And I would say most of these individuals likely have mold toxicity. In the next episode, I look forward to talking about how we test and treat mold toxicity And I'll answer questions such as how can people order testing without a doctor's involvement, types of treatment for mold toxicity and colonization, how we treat both of those, how I identify other root causes that could be happening in parallel or secondary or made worse by mold toxicity, and why endlessly going after all these secondary issues can be futile if mold toxicity is the deepest root cause and what holds people back from healing, and the problems I see with some of the mold treatment that's being provided. If you know someone you think this information could be helpful for, please consider sharing. You're welcome to subscribe on my website if you'd like at CourtneySnyderMD.com to get notification of future episodes. If you'd like to help me get this information out into the world, consider liking, commenting, or sharing on one of the social media sites. And until we connect in a future podcast, take care. Bye-bye.